0: Two weeks ago, uh, I began a two-part series on the single verse of John 1.14, and so we, we come to part two today. And I mentioned then that what we're after in turning our minds to the great truths of the Incarnation is true worship. The nostalgia and the tradition and the holiday cheer are all wonderful blessings to be received from God's hand with thanksgiving. But we want more than that out of Christmas. We want the heart-thrilling worship, the the soul-ravishing delight that comes from beholding the beauty of the great mystery of godliness that is the incarnation of Christ. God becoming man in order to stand in man's place and bear man's curse. That is, as John Owen said, the glory of the Christian religion and the animating soul of all evangelical truth. The infinite and eternal God taking on the nature of finite and mortal humanity into personal union with His divine nature, all without shedding or restricting or changing His divine nature in any way. Two whole perfect and distinct natures, inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition or confusion. It is, as we've said, the miracle of all miracles. And it is the heart of the gospel of our salvation. I don't ever tire of saying it. Man committed sin and so only man's payment for sin would satisfy justice. But No man could ever pay the infinite penalty that our sins deserve. Only the infinitely righteous God himself could satisfy the infinite wrath that our sins earned us. And yet only man's sacrifice would be accepted on behalf of man. So no one ought to pay but man, and no one can pay but God. And so, miracle of all miracles, God becomes man to reconcile God to man and when those truths burrow into your soul when you can behold their glory with the eye of faith then there is communion with the triune God then there is worship genuine soul enrapturing worship of the father for his love and wisdom of Christ for his grace and humble condescension and of the Spirit for His skillful execution of the divine plan. That is the worship you were created for. That was the the soul-enrapturing delight you were given a heart to know. John Owen says again, Let us get it fixed on our souls and in our minds that this glory of Christ in the divine constitution of His person is the best the most noble, useful, beneficial object that we can be conversant about in our thoughts or cleave unto in our affections. The heights of our worship never exceed the depths of our theology. Our praise to God for the incarnation of Christ soars only as high as our understanding of this great mystery is rooted in the truth. And so to root ourselves in the truth, we turned to mine out the treasures of John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Two weeks ago, I likened that precious verse to a multifaceted diamond which when you shift the vantage point just slightly, the light of truth passes through its facets in distinct but harmonious ways so as to display the brilliance of the glory of the Incarnation. And I mentioned that there were seven facets of the Incarnation to behold in this verse, and we got to three of them last time. I'll take a brief moment to review those three. First, we considered the subject of the Incarnation, the subject John says, and the Word became flesh. And that chased us back up to the opening verse of John's gospel, where we learned that in the beginning was the Word. This Word is eternal, the one who was in the beginning. We also learned that this Word is distinct from the Father, because John says the Word was with God. And to be with someone is to not be that someone. But then we learned that the word is God himself, and the word was God. He is with God and therefore distinct from God, and he is God. And and so we found that this word who has become flesh was none other than God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And we looked at how Scripture uses the term word, and we found that this eternal word is the supreme revelation of God, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. That he is the divine creator of all things, Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord the heavens are made. That he is the sustainer of all creation, Hebrews 1, 3, and the savior of God's people, Psalm one oh seven, nineteen and 20. This is what the Apostle John wants you to hear when he speaks of the subject of the Incarnation as the Word who became flesh. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the eternally glorious, equal with the Father, Creator, Sustainer, and Savior. And that brought us to a second facet, namely the substance of the Incarnation, this Word became flesh. And we spoke right away about how that cannot mean that the divine person of the Son changed himself into a human being, or that the divine nature transmuted into a human nature, or that the Son exchanged his deity for humanity, or that he divested himself of the divine nature. It cannot mean that the Son diluted His divine nature by mixing humanity with it or, or diminished His Godhead in any way. No, the Word became flesh means that the person of the Son, who had always subsisted in the divine nature, now, without ceasing to subsist in that divine nature, began subsisting in a human nature as well. The person of that human nature, the subject which acted in and through Jesus Christ's human nature, was the same person who had acted in and through the divine nature from all eternity, God the Son. Say it uh, one other way, that the eternal Son, who always existed in the undivided divine nature, assumed to himself a full and true human nature into personal union right alongside his full and true and unchanging divine nature so that he is fully God as though he were never man and fully man as though he were never God at the very same time. Yes, the Son emptied himself, Philippians 2.7, but that we, we talked about how that text does not say that he emptied himself of anything. The text says that the son himself is the object of this self-emptying. He did not empty the divine nature. He did not empty the divine attributes. He did not empty the divine prerogatives. The son made himself of no reputation by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men not by putting anything off not by subtracting anything from his divine existence but by taking on a human nature into personal union with his divine nature christ fully possessed his divine nature attributes and prerogatives but for the sake of his saving mission he did not always fully express the glories of his majesty he veiled his glory Concealing it in our nature, in a nature in which he could become hungry and weary and sorrowful, whereas he could not before. A nature in which he could know pain and shame and even death, which he could not before. Also, that he can live and die as the slave of all and accomplish our redemption. This is the substance of the Incarnation. And then in the third place, we spoke of the sweetness of the Incarnation. The eternal, omnipresent God, whom heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observe that this term for dwelt uh, in the, the original Greek can be translated tabernacled. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. We saw how that was a reference to the tabernacle of God in the wilderness where he dwelt with Israel, where he met with them, where he spoke with them and sanctified them and atoned for their sins. And we spoke about how Israel profaned God's temple and how he delivered them into exile and allowed their captors to destroy his dwelling place, but also about how he promised one day to restore them to their land and dwell with his people once again. And after centuries of waiting, a baby is born to a poor virgin. And John says, this is the eternal word. This is Yahweh himself, God the Son, the ultimate self-disclosure and perfect revelation of God, descending from heaven once again and tabernacling among God's people. You see, Jesus is where God's glory dwells. Jesus is the place where God condescends to man and where he fellowships with God, where man fellowships with God. Jesus is the place where God speaks to man. Jesus is the place where God's people are sanctified to him. Jesus is where all priestly ministry finds its fulfillment and where full and final atonement for sin is accomplished once for all. Jesus is where God's people go to worship him. Jesus is God's dwelling place. And in the miraculous birth, in this miraculous birth, he has come to dwell with us. And that, that's where he we went. Two weeks ago, I'm so tempted to re-preach all of that. There's so much there that I just want to comment on, but I've already done it. If you haven't gotten it, go to the, get the, uh, get the recording. That brings us then to the fourth facet of the incarnation that we find in this text, and that is number four, the splendor of the incarnation. The splendor. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. And that only makes sense when we consider the previous point. Exodus 29, 43 said that the tabernacle would be consecrated by Yahweh's glory. And in Exodus 40, 34, when the construction of the tabernacle was complete, we're told that the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle, so much so that Moses couldn't even enter in. And then Exodus 40, 36 says that the glory of God would reside in his dwelling place, whether as a cloud by day or a fire by night, and would lead God's people throughout all of their journeys. And 450 years after that, when Israel is dwelling in the land of Canaan, and it's time for Solomon to build a house for the Lord, the glory of God takes up residence in his temple in the same way that it did in the tabernacle in the wilderness. First Kings 8, 10-12 Says this, It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of Yahweh, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. Then Solomon said, Yahweh has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. So you see, there is an absolutely inseparable connection between God's dwelling place. In God's glory. So much so that in Psalm 26:8, David calls the habitation of God's house the place where your glory dwells. These are inextricable. In fact, two weeks ago I mentioned that the Hebrew word for to dwell is Shakan. Does that sound like any other popular Hebrew word you might have heard before? Shakannah. Shekinah? Shekinah, which is a word for what? The glory of God. Shachan and Shekinah come from the same root. They both signify the same idea that the dwelling of God is absolutely inseparable from the glory of God. But over the next 350 years following that, Israel profanes the temple of God by their idolatry and their disobedience. He's already delivered the northern kingdom of Israel into the hands of the Assyrians in 721 B.C. And in 592, the southern kingdom of Judah was facing the same fate at the hands of the Babylonians. And I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 8. In 2 Chronicles 36, we get get the historical um, sort of narrative about what's going on. In Ezekiel 8... God gives the prophet a vision of the gross idolatry that has been going on and which provokes him to judgment in giving Israel into the Babylonian exile. So Ezekiel 8, verses 3 and 4, Ezekiel says, the spirit gave him a vision of the temple and in the temple, right alongside the physical manifestation of the glory of God, the Shekinah, was the seat of the idol of jealousy. That was the idol that the people had placed in God's temple, taking an idol of another God and putting it right where the glory of God dwells in his temple and worshiping it instead of him, as it were, right in front of his face. And verse 6, and God said to me, son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here so that I would be far from my sanctuary? And all we need to feel the weight of those words. So that God would be far from his own sanctuary. So that he would be absent from the very place that was designed to house and mediate his special presence with his people. It's unthinkable. But, verse 6, God says, you will see still greater abominations. Then God tells Ezekiel to dig through a hole in the wall and to see what's going on through there. And verse 10, so I entered and looked and behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. Standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel, each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. See, the elders of Israel, the spiritual leaders of God's people, were worshiping the images of idols that they had carved on the wall of Yahweh's temple. But, God says again in verse 13, you will will see still greater abominations. And then he sees women weeping for the Babylonian god Tammuz. And then in verse 16, he finds 25 men with their backs to the temple and their faces toward the east bowing and worshiping the son they've turned their backs on god's dwelling place and they're worshiping what the creature rather than the creator and these abominations this mass idolatry is happening in the temple of god the place where his glory dwells in the place where he condescends and meets israel and cleanses them from their sins So once again, what is God's response? Verse 18, therefore, I indeed will deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. And then Ezekiel sees God send executioners into the city to destroy those who have committed idolatry. Chapter 9, verse 6, God commands them, utterly slay old men young men, maidens, little children and women, and you shall start from where? From my sanctuary. And Ezekiel is terrified, and he begs God not to destroy all the people so that he won't become unfaithful to his covenant, totally destroy Israel, and dishonor his own name. But then, even worse than that, the Shekinah glory of God which symbolizes God's dwelling with his people, starts to stir. Look at chapter 10 and verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone in appearance resembling a throne appeared above them. So Ezekiel sees heaven opened and, uh, over the golden cherubim that protect the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies and he sees the heavenly throne of God breaking into his earthly dwelling place in the temple. Verse 3 speaks of the cloud that filled the inner court. That is the cloud of the Shekinah glory that had been with Israel since the deliverance out of Egypt in Exodus 13. Verse 4, Then the glory of Yahweh went up from the cherub the threshold of the temple and the temple was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of Yahweh. The Shekinah glory cloud has gone from over the ark moved to hovering over the cherub and now it goes to the threshold of the temple to the exit and it stays there. But skip down to verse 18. Then the glory of Yahweh Departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And now these aren't the golden cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. These are the actual angels in Ezekiel's vision. Verse 19. And when the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of Yahweh's house and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. So now God's glory is with his angels at the very last exit of the temple. Skip down to chapter 11 and verse 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. The glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. The glory of Yahweh departs from the temple and it hovers over the Mount of Olives. Yes. And then, after the glory of God leaves, seemingly reluctantly, right, uh, from the ark to the threshold, to the angels, to the last exit, to the, he seems like he's, I, I'm leaving, but I don't want to leave. After it leaves from his dwelling place, The glory ascends with the angels over the Mount of Olives back into heaven. For the first time in Israel's history, for the first time in 850 years, the people of God are without the presence of their God. Yahweh is no longer dwelling with his people. And that is the last time that the glory of Yahweh is seen on the earth Until almost 600 years later, a baby is born in a manger because there's no room for him in the inn. And some shepherds were out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks. And Luke 2, 9, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. And suddenly verse 13, there appeared with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. You see, after 600 years of waiting, the next time the glory of Yahweh appears, it comes to shepherds to proclaim the birth of Jesus, of Christ the Lord. And and what a few words those are. Christ is the Greek translation of Messiah. This is the anointed one. This is the long-expected coming one who would deliver God's people from their sins and rule over them in righteousness. And he is Christ the Lord, ha kurios, which is the Greek translation of the divine name Yahweh. This angel surrounded by the glory of Yahweh, the glory that no one has seen for centuries, is announcing Yahweh is here. He's here. And John says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory God has come again to dwell with men in Jesus, in this helpless infant covered in amniotic fluid, lying in a feed trough for a bed because there's no room for him in the world that he had made to have a bed. Here is the true temple of God announced by the very glory of God who would display the glory of God throughout his life, wouldn't he? When he performed his miracles and testified to his deity, the first of his signs he performed at Cana and manifested his glory there. When he took Peter and James and John up to the Mount of Olives where his glory Ascended back into heaven in Ezekiel, he takes him to the Mount of Olives and there he was transfigured before them. And it it was as if the veil of his humanity was briefly lifted and the glory of his divine nature shone through. His face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. He displayed divine glory when He rose from the grave on the third day and when He ascended back into heaven in a cloud of glory also on the Mount of Olives, Acts 1-9, which is where He will descend from heaven when He splits the Mount of Olives down the middle, Zechariah 14. And Matthew 25-31 calls that time when the Son of Man comes in His glory. Dear people, behold your king. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord, in the splendor of his incarnation. And if we can catch our breath, we move to another mountain peak of truth, the fifth facet of the incarnation, namely the son of the incarnation. The son of the incarnation. Back to John 1, we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Now, this term, only begotten, identifies this Word who became flesh, the Eternal One, distinct from the Father, but God Himself. This one is not just Word of God, this one is Eternal Son of the Father. He is God, the Son. And this is an important point to make because when many Christians read that Jesus is the only begotten from the Father or that he's the only begotten God, verse 18, or that he's the only begotten Son, John 3, 16, I'm convinced that many read those those as references to Jesus' incarnation, to his birth, rather than to his eternal sonship. Many think that only begotten refers to the fact that Jesus was begotten in the womb of Mary and he's only begotten because the Father and the Spirit weren't, weren't incarnate. That's not what this refers to. John says that he beheld the glory of the incarnate Son, and that glory was as of the only begotten from the Father. And, and as we've just seen, this is a divine glory we're talking about. It's the fulfillment of the Shekinah glory of God dwelling with his people in the tabernacle and the temple. It's the glory of the transfiguration. This is not a glory that Jesus has by virtue of his incarnation. It's the glory that he has by virtue of being the eternal word, the eternal son of the Father. Why in John 17, 5, he says, I've accomplished your work and now glorify me together with the glory that I had with you before the world was. So as it is not a human glory, it is not a human begetting that is in view in this verse. When John speaks of Jesus as the only begotten from the Father, he is referring to a divine begetting. He is referring to yet another great mystery of the faith the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. And the doctrine of eternal generation has been an essential doctrine of the faith from the earliest days of Christianity, despite its having fallen on hard times in the last 150 years, as most sound doctrine has. It is, eternal generation is precisely how the persons of the Father and the Son are to be distinguished from one another. Both the Father and the Son fully subsist in the identical divine essence. They are both truly and fully God. But though the Father is God and the Son is God, the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. Everything that the Father is, the Son is. But the Father is not who the Son is. They are the same what, but they are distinct whose. Well, on what basis, though, can we distinguish the Father from the Son? Well, on the basis that Scripture calls the Father, Father, and calls the Son, Son, and only begotten. What does it mean for the Father to be Father? And what does it mean for the son to be son? Why does scripture use those titles to distinguish the divine persons? Some people give the answer that it's because a father exercises authority over his son and and a son submits to his father. And therefore, they say, what it means for God the son to be son is to submit to God the father. That is entirely unbiblical. Unbiblical. There is not a single text of Scripture that supports eternal relations of authority and submission among the persons of the Trinity. And such a position is fatal to the deity of the Son. If you want more on that, I preached on that back in March. I also did a Shepherd's Conference seminar back in March. But that is not the answer. What is the answer? Scripture calls the Father, Father, and the Son, Son, because a son has the same nature as his father and because the son has that nature from his father. Does that make sense? Consubstantiality or sameness of nature and fromness. And I think that we understand that. You know, my son is, a, is human like I am human. We are the same sort of being And because he is from me, he is human like me. We are consubstantial. But my son has his nature from me as his father. Consubstantiality and fromness. This is what scripture means to teach by calling the father the father of the son and the son begotten of the father. The son has the identical divine nature from the father. He is God of very God, and the Son has that identical divine nature from the Father. He is God of very God. That is to say, the Father communicates the undivided divine essence to the Son. You say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That sounds like you're saying the Father created the Son that He brought the Son into existence. How can we speak of the generation of the eternal uncreated Word? And the answer is we have to speak of the eternal generation. God the Father doesn't generate God the Son in a manner that is one-to-one analogous with human generation. Human generation has a beginning. It happens at a single point in time. It requires that a father exist before his Son, And it also requires a mother. But those things are not true of the eternal generation of God the Son. This is an incomprehensible, eternal communication of the divine essence. It has no beginning. There is no single point in time when it takes place because it's before time. The Father did not exist before the Son. There was never a time when the Father wasn't the Father. And so there was never a time when the Son wasn't the Son. He is begotten, not created, as the Nicene Creed says. So you say, well, why use the term generation if you have to qualify it so heavily? And the answer is, one, Scripture uses that term. The Greek word that translates to only begotten in John 1.14, along with John 1.18, John 3.16, and 3.18, and 1 John 4.9, is monogenes. From the terms manas only and gena'o to beget. So, first of all, eternal generation is scriptural language. But secondly, scripture not only uses the terms, it describes the phenomenon consubstantiality and fromness. The eternal communication of the full, undivided divine essence from the Father to the Son. Turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, the Jews are angry with Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. And in verse 17, Jesus responds by saying, I work on the Sabbath because my father works on the Sabbath. And that enrages them all because they understood what he was saying. Verse 18, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Then verse 19, he says, He only does what he sees the Father's doing. And listen to this, whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So Jesus grounds his equality with the Father in the fact that they work inseparably. He is God just like the Father is God because the Father's acts are his acts. He's saying we act from the same principle of action which is to say, the same nature. We are homoousios, we are consubstantial. And he goes on to speak of raising the dead, judging all people, receiving worship, just as the Father does. Truly remarkable claims by Jesus. And then, as he speaks about the final resurrection, he makes this astounding statement in verse 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. What does it mean for the Father to have life in himself? Well, it means that he has the attribute of self-existence. Or sometimes you'll hear it called aseity, from the Latin esse, meaning from oneself. So the Father has this attribute of self-existence. And Jesus says, he too has this identical attribute of self-existence. But he has it in a different manner than the Father has it. The Father has life in himself that has been given to him by no one. The Son has this same life in himself that was given to him by the Father. Do you see that? Even so, the Father gave to the Son to have life in himself. You say, how can one have life in himself that was given to him? Right? Self-existence is either in himself or from another, right? Well, apparently not because Jesus thinks it no contradiction to speak of life in himself that was given to him by the Father. Now, when you remember that God is a simple being, and that all the divine attributes are identical to the divine essence, you realize that the Father's giving to the Son the attribute of self-existence is nothing less than the Father communicating to the Son the entire divine essence. Jesus is speaking here of eternal generation. He does the same works as the Father because he's consubstantial of the same nature as the Father. And he has that nature from the Father. The Father gave to the the Son to have the simple divine essence in Himself. The Son has all that the Father has, the whole divine essence, the identical divine nature. But the Son has that identical divine nature in a manner distinct from the way the Father has it. The Father has it from Himself. He's begotten of no one. The Son has the divine nature from the Father because He is eternally begotten of the Father. That is just what it means to be son. I can't tell you how long I've wanted to say this to you. (laughs) And Scripture communicates this same truth of both consubstantiality and fromness by the use of different figures, not just only begotten. So turn with me quickly to Hebrews 1. The author of Hebrews begins his God-breathed letter, in a way similar to how John begins his gospel, he says, there was an, well John says, there's an eternal word who is only begotten son. And Hebrews says, in these last days, God has spoken his word to us in his son. John says, without him was not anything made that has been made. And Hebrews says, through this son, God made the world. And then in Hebrews 1, 3, it says, And he, the Son, is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Listen to that. The Son is the perfect imprint of the Father's nature. He is consubstantial with the Father. But he is the radiance of the Father's glory, which implies fromness. Right, Both the Father and the Son shine in glory, but the Son's shining is somehow derived from the Father's shining. Just as light naturally radiates its brightness, so too God naturally radiates His Son because Sonship denotes consubstantiality and fromness. This is what the Nicene Creed of 381 means when it confesses faith in one Lord Jesus Christ The only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. That's as old as as a confession of Christianity that you're going to get. And these are the foundation stones of Christian doctrine. The radiance, light of light. Paul points to this same truth in Colossians 1 when he calls Christ the image of the invisible God. Christ is not the Father, but he is the perfect reproduction of the Father's image so that all the Father is, the Son is, consubstantiality, but the Son is what he is by virtue of what he receives from the Father, fromness. Just as an image is distinct, from and derivative of what it represents and in fact John means to communicate this same truth back in John 1 by calling the son the word of God God's word is as God himself that's why 1 Samuel 321 says Yahweh appeared at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh Yahweh appeared by his word God's here why because he's speaking word as the, as the God himself. Psalm 138, 2, you have magnified your word above all your name. Yahweh's word is as his own name, his own character and nature. What is that? Consubstantiality. And yet God's word goes forth from his mouth. Isaiah 55, 11. His word is uttered from him. Fromness. So whether it's begotten, radiance, image, or word. Before the foundation of the world, before all things, the Father eternally communicated the fullness of the whole divine essence to the Son in this incomprehensible, inexpressible act internal to the life of the triune God himself. That's what it means for the Son to be only begotten. Now, can you feel the weight then of what John is, is wanting to land on you when he says, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. This glory, he's saying, dear reader, this glory that we beheld in the word become flesh. It wasn't a cloud. It wasn't a pillar of fire. It wasn't the Shekinah glory that went out from the temple of Solomon over the Mount of Olives. No, Matthew 12, 6, something greater than the temple is here. The queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The only begotten Son is here. The eternal radiance of the Father's glory is here. The very image of the invisible God is here. The one to whom the Father has given to have life in Himself is here. We beheld the glory of the eternally generated Son. God of God, we sang. Light of light eternal. Lo, He abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God. Begotten, not created. Oh, come, let us adore him. But can you imagine? It doesn't end there. We come now to a sixth facet of the incarnation, what I'm calling, number six, the savor of the incarnation. The savor. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth and how truly lovely it is that our savior this glorious only begotten one would be full of grace and truth what is sinful man's greatest need but grace we have defiled ourselves by our disobedience to god's law and holy justice demands to be satisfied in nothing but our eternal ruin but here comes our incarnate Savior, full of grace, full of unmerited favor to be bestowed upon poor sinners who could do nothing to satisfy divine justice but go to our everlasting misery. As our great priest, he reconciles us to God by accomplishing atonement in our stead, righteously purchasing the saving grace that affects our salvation. As our great king, He subdues our rebellion by sovereignly applying the saving grace that he purchased for us. And as our great prophet, he leads us and guides us in the truth of God's word, dispelling the lies that our sinful hearts are always tempted to wander after and instructing us in the paths of truth. You see, the one full of grace and truth is the one who is prophet, priest, and king the divine mediator, the divine Messiah. And I also think, given John's comments in verse 17, that the apostle means to show how Jesus excels the revelation of God that came before him. Right? The tabernacle and the temple were types or figures of God's dwelling place among men. But Christ, the God-man, is not a type. He is the truth to which all the figures point. And then, similarly, the glory of Yahweh dwelt in the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament under a time of law. It did so under a covenant that the Apostle Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 3 the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. Why? Because the Mosaic Covenant couldn't justify. It could not impart life, Galatians 3.21. It could only condemn The law could never impart righteousness. It could only show, expose how far short of God's standard of righteousness that we fall and point us to something greater, to someone greater. John says, that someone is here. The law was given through Moses, verse 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith, Galatians 3.24. Where they had law, we have grace. Where they had types, here is the truth. But there's another reason that John makes this comment, and that is to show in yet another way that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. The Old Testament equivalent of the phrase grace and truth is the Hebrew phrase hesed and emeth, often translated loving kindness and truth. And it is used all throughout the Old Testament to refer to Yahweh's character. Write down these references as I read them to you. Psalm 25, 10. All the paths of Yahweh are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Psalm 89 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. And then again, Psalm 138, 2, listen to this. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. Talk of a temple and then grace and truth. And then Psalm 57, verse 3 He will send from heaven and save me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. Grace and truth sent from heaven to save God's people. And then listen to Psalm 85, 9 and 10. This is something. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together righteousness and peace. Have kissed each other, and then Proverbs sixteen six caps it off by saying, "By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for." You see what John's doing, but no text is more significant in this regard than Exodus thirty four six. This is that passage that is affectionately termed God's autobiography, as Moses pleads before the people, or pleads for the people before Yahweh on the mountain. He cries out, Exodus 33, 18, show me your glory. And God says, okay, yes, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. You'll only see my back, but I will show you my glory. And Exodus 34, 5 says, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of Yahweh. And then verse six, then Yahweh passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And you see the parallel? The glory of Yahweh descends from heaven with Moses on the mountain and he proclaims he is abounding in loving kindness and truth. Now in John 1.14, the word of Yahweh descends from heaven and John declares he is the glory of Yahweh dwelling among us and that he is full of grace and truth. John is telling us again, the baby in the manger is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Loving kindness and truth have met together in the person of the Redeemer Righteousness and peace have kissed each other in the cross of his redemption. And inasmuch as it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ, Colossians 1.19. And inasmuch as in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, Colossians nine, So this only begotten glorious one is full of grace and truth. And that brings us to our final point, number seven. The supply of the Incarnation. The supply of the Incarnation. And for that, we we cheat a little bit and skip down to verse 16. For of His fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. He is full of grace and truth and from His fullness we have all received. Have we not? This is the testimony of every one of God's people. We who have feasted upon this Savior by faith have received nothing but the gracious dispensations of a loving shepherd of our souls. Charles Spurgeon once testified to this truth when he said, I never dreamed that he could be such as he has been to me. Oh, how I must have vexed and grieved his gracious heart and caused him pain. But never, never, never once have I had anything from him but love. It is grace upon grace, or literally, grace in the place of grace. What does that mean? It's just this never-ending supply of grace after grace after grace from Christ our dear Savior. Pastor John says it's like waves of grace rolling in on the seashore. When one wave of grace breaks onto the shore and washes back out, there's just another wave right behind it with a fresh supply of grace. And which of you who know him will deny that? We know the grace of the atonement, in which our substitute purchased for us a full and perfect redemption, in which he extinguished the fierce wrath of God that burned hot against our sin by bearing that wrath in his own person as he suffered for his people on the cross. We know the grace of regeneration in which the Holy Spirit of God overcomes our spiritual death and blindness and by an exercise of absolute sovereignty births in us the divine life, gives us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. We know the grace of repentant faith in which we are given the gifts of turning from our sins and trusting in Jesus the very instrument whereby we lay hold of Christ and every spiritual blessing in him is granted to us as a gracious gift. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. We know the grace of union to Christ, whereby all that he is becomes ours. All that is his is shared with those who are united to him. The grace of justification whereby we are declared righteous apart from our own works but on the basis of the righteous works of Jesus imputed to our account. We know the grace of adoption whereby we become the children of God welcomed into his very household seated at his table invested with all the rights and privileges of being his own sons and daughters. We know the grace of sanctification in which we're set apart from our sins to be the special possession of Almighty God in which we are decisively freed from the dominion of sin and in which our corruption is cleansed day by day as we are progressively transformed into the image of God the Son, transformed in our actual practice more and more into the very image of Christ himself who is the image of the invisible God. The grace of of fresh pardon for sins as we go to Christ every day with our heads hanging in shame with tears streaming down our face asking forgiveness again for the same sins we confessed the day before and when we go to him doing that you know what we find nothing but a sympathetic high priest who loves to forgive Grace upon grace, the grace of perseverance, wherein we are assured that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And that no matter what trials and temptations befall us, he will finish that good work which he has begun in you. We will make it home to heaven. All the way to the grace of glorification, wherein our very bodies will be raised from the dead imperishable. Reunited with our souls and be rid of any trace of sin whatsoever so that we may live in sinless freedom on the new earth in the presence of God and of the Lamb. And because every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is received in Christ, Ephesians 1.3, the mediator, every grace upon grace that we receive, we receive because of the Incarnation. Each of those graces come to us only by virtue of the mediation of Christ. And he can only mediate by virtue of his being God and man, word and flesh, begotten of the Father and born of a virgin. And so, dear Christian, praise God for Christmas. Praise God for the incarnation. This is what we celebrate the subject, the substance, the sweetness, the splendor, the sun, the savor, and the supply. And may it be that you draw from the deep wells of the theology we've meditated upon in these last weeks to flood your heart with worship and adoration to the Father who sent the Son in love, adoration to the Son who came in humility and in grace, and to the Spirit who seals Christ to your heart and brings you to the Father. And dear unbeliever, you who are with us this Christmas Sunday, but who have not yet cast your soul upon God the Son incarnate for forgiveness of your sins, can you be moved to behold the glorious God-man in all the riches of his beauty as I've failingly attempted to show him to you from his own word? Can you see glory? Can you look upon him with the eyes of faith and see in him all the sufficiency of the very Savior you need to forgive your sins by his death on the cross and to provide you with the righteousness of his own life and perfect obedience? Would you receive grace upon grace this morning by turning from your sins and trusting in Christ alone for your righteousness before God. It is no accident that just before this treasure chest of a verse that tells us of Jesus' qualifications to be our incarnate Savior, that we are told, John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born of God. Would you receive Christ this morning and so become an adopted child of God? Would you believe in his name and lay hold of heaven? Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. He was born for this. Calls you one and calls you all to gain his everlasting hall. Christ was born to save. Christ was born to save. Believe on him and be saved. No gift you'll unwrap tomorrow will be greater than that glorious Savior. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Father, we bow in in wonder and love and praise before the revelation of your truth to us, confident that this is what you have said of yourself and, and thrilled in our hearts to see a little of you by the eye of faith. I pray that it would be a sanctifying vision. I pray that we would worship the divine son, the incarnate son for all of eternity, but certainly for all of 2024, the year upon which pre- precipice we stand remembering the glory of, of the one, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us in gl- whose glory we beheld glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We confess we have received from his fullness grace upon grace and we ask still for more. We are a needy people. We need more grace, God. And we know that you delight to show yourself sufficient and mighty in pouring out greater grace on worthless and needy sinners. All that we are, we are because of you. All that we must not be, we are in spite of your work in us. And we pray that you would finish that work in us. Conform us more to the image of Christ, the image of the invisible God, so that he would come to have first place in everything and so that you would receive what you are worthy of from your church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. For more information about the Ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by The Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved. For more information about the Ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by The Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.